If the eyes are the windows to the soul, then the focus puller is the gatekeeper to the human condition. This is the kind of job you'll only notice when it is going wrong, for subjective views may vary on what good lighting is, what a great performance may be, or how exceptional the spread is at craft service, but everyone can see when McConaughey is out of focus. As the unofficial leader of the camera department, the first AC may be the only person in the world where the words soft and fuzzy don't recall a time of comfort, but instead trigger visions of blurry hell, how we take for granted one of the most critical positions in film, for the audience will neigh bat an eye at the technical prowess of those who better the circle of confusion, who wield up the field like some blade from Kruger's claw, who work as mystics of anticipation predicting the future of movement as it relates to the barrel of a lens, all for the simple crusade of allowing the the audience to literally focus on the performance. Hello and welcome to Podcasting Crew, brought to you by Circus, Canada's most sustainable HR platform for the film and television production industry. And if you aren't already, make sure you're following them across social media. This week's episode is sponsored by the Vancouver Short Film Festival and Cinevic. We are filmmakers and film fans interested in the jobs and philosophies of the film industry from the view below the line. My name is Scooter Corkle, your host for Podcast and Crew, joined by my co-host and producer, Corey Orban. Today, we're joined by globe-trotting focus-puller extraordinaire, Doug Lavender. Known for his work on Chris Nolan's masterpieces Dunkirk and Interstellar, the upcoming Younger Right Men's Ghostbusters 2020, and his much-sought-after kitten stickers. Yes, that's right, kitten stickers. We are also joined by the sharper-than-thy Jessica Moscow, known for such fun-time genre fare as Will Smith's iRobot, Freddy and Jason's Freddy vs. Jason, and the legendary Vancouver production of The Watchmen. Who watches The Watchmen? Everyone. So without further ado, let's get into it. Maybe just tell us who you are and what you do, in your opinion, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Doug, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. My name's Doug Lavender. I'm a camera assistant, or also known as a focus puller in the film business. I live in Vancouver, BC, and I've been a camera assistant for 30 years. I joined in 1990 as a camera trainee in Vancouver and was trained on the job by local people here and I've been doing it very busily ever since for 30 years. Yeah, up in Hollywood North, in Hollywood. Uh, which nobody in Hollywood North appreciates that name. <laughs> um, Jessica, what about you? Uh, my name is Jessica Moscal and I have been in ICG since 1997. Uh, so not quite as long as Doug, but uh, probably close to as busy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and um, I've been fortunate to be mentored by a lot of amazing people, and it is the type of job where you, you learn how to do it uh, while you're doing it in a lot of cases. You mm -hmm. can do some preparation before you get on set. Uh, there are some schools that will help you prepare, but um, the reality is a bit different on set than it is in a classroom. Yeah, everybody's um, got their opinions on like film schools versus actually learning on the job. And in, in film, it's like cut right down the middle too, as, as per who actually goes to learn something before getting on set to then relearn everything they've just thought they learned. You well, know? and before we get into it too, too much, maybe like this would be a good opportunity if Doug, you want to start like, what is, for those who don't know who are listening, what is the first AC? What is a focus puller? 
what does that role kind of entail? Are they different? Are they the same? The title focus puller first AC? Well, a first AC has two jobs. One of them is to um, organize and assist. Assist being a very key word. You're assisting the director of photography and therefore the director to make their movie. And there's a lot of gear and tools that go with that. We'll get into that later. But the focus pulling part is another part of being a first AC. So in addition to organizing and doing all this technological gizmo, (laughs) messing around every day, you also have to be keeping things in focus. A focus puller is someone who adjusts the focus of the lens while the operator steers the camera around, points it at different things. Mm -hmm. And you said that uh, you're assisting the director of photography, so not really the camera operator because the director of photography is sort of dictating what um, an operator does and what an AC does. So technically you're still just working underneath the DOP where some might think that you're working directly underneath the, the camera operator. Is you that would, true to say? Uh, I would say I'm a cinematographer's assistant, yes. Uh, the op- operator and I both work for the cinematographer because they design the shots. I don't know. It's There's different views of it, right, Jessica? I mean... Absolutely. I, I would absolutely agree that you are there to facilitate the director of photography and his or her vision. Hmm. And you are organizing not just the equipment, but the entire camera team. A lot of productions will come to the first camera assistant and ask them to organize the personnel and not just the gear, but the entire department. And on occasion, they will say, you are the head of the department which is not technically true, but in reality, it becomes true. It's becoming more and more. I think you're right. That's a good point, that you are in charge of hiring, whether it be day calls, people that come in for the day because you have an extra camera, or also just vetting the entire crewing process early on. Sometimes it can start a month or two away from production that you're hiring everybody from the loader to the uh, second assistants. And oftentimes, I've been asked to to recommend operators. Mm -hmm. So... You actually really, and that's quite interesting. Well, that's, absolutely, that's, absolutely. Um, so you're the de facto head of department. If you're hired by the cinematographer before everybody else, then they, and especially in our environment here, a lot of people come from out of town. Yeah, I suppose that would be so true. So they want to know who you worked with that you th- they think that you think would be a good fit for the movie that they're about to make. Mm. In simple terms, the assistant part of the job is making the director of photography's life easier. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, how did the the first AC or focus puller position kind of evolve to that point? Because you would think, from the outsider's perspective, you would think director of photography, head of department. Well, if not them, then the operator. But you guys seem to be kind of the nexus of personnel and technological know-how, which is quite impressive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The job is so incredibly detailed, um, <clears throat> which I'd love to get into at some point. But where, where do you think the evolution of, you, you know, you being the floor manager or the boss became? You know, I think it originated in L.A. more, didn't it? I mean, it's... Well, I think because we are a service industry in Vancouver, there really is more of an obligation of the assistants here to help out directors of photography who are coming from elsewhere on the planet right. mm. because your director of photography can come from anywhere in the world. It is a it is a global industry. Right, that's right. true. I mean, that's a good point that um, directors of photography that are from here would have a, a core team that you wouldn't ha- necessarily have to do as much of the pre-production hiring and groundwork for that, right? Because... 
I guess the other side of that question too is, has that always been the case? Like since you started as the first AC sort of always been the leader of that department or is, has that evolved as a service industry you got you know, more and more Americans coming up or Europeans coming over? I think it depends on the individual as well who's been hired as the first AC because some people understand that there's there are individuals who are stronger in that way than others. So, And some operators don't want to like would not agree with the statements that we're saying that we're the heads of the department. Some, some operators very much want to be in control of all the hiring um, on some crews. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and perhaps is that a good segue then to like the perception of the camera department is that it's quite uh, a strict hierarchy um, and quite structured in that gr- regard, maybe even more so than some of the other departments. It's very well. And would you agree with that statement? Or is it's almost militant at times as far as like how structured it has to be in order to work that machine. Is that a fair thing to say or no? I think it works better when it is. Right. I um, My own style is to have like little pre-day meetings if it's going to be a complex day. And let's be clear, there's more than one camera system more than one focus puller on mm-hmm. each movie yep yeah uh some move like the last movie we just finished we had three teams and so there was three first assistant camera people mm-hmm. um the a camera person then you know can take charge and and explain to everybody else on the crew what might happen or how they want to see the day organized and how to better do things that failed maybe yesterday like you might right. have a little talk about you know safety or weather conditions or how you want to reduce chatter on set because things can get out of hand. Film sets are are mayhem. We're a rowdy bunch, <laughs> actually. <laughs> <laughs> so you try to have some sort of sense, and I hate all the racket and stuff. So yeah, try to have little tea pregame chats about how the day should be and how people mm-hmm. should behave. And then if you have like an A camera, B camera, C camera, you know, first ACs on each. Um, are they running those specific cameras? And then A is sort of the, again, the floor manager, which is something I exactly. brought up. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. The A camera needs to disseminate the information that mm-hmm. needs to go out to make that day run smoothly. And so the B camera defers to the A camera, as does the Charlie camera, which is the C camera, or any mm-hmm. other cameras. I mean, there are days where you have, I think the biggest camera day I ever had, we had... 18 cameras out one day. That wow. was painful. And 18 camera <laughs> yeah, really? teams? It, we had nine camera teams Wow! for the 18 cameras. That is a big day. What it's show was that? Huge. It was a pilot, and um, it was money just... Money to burn. It was, yeah. yeah, money to burn. It was a massive car chase, car crash. Yeah. So... Wow. It was a lot of cameras. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I try and avoid yeah, exactly. shows like that now. Yeah. How many camera trucks did you have? Um, Three. Yeah, because there couldn't have just been one. That's bananas. It was pretty <laughs> yeah. It was pretty painful. Three actually sounds pretty low compared to what you were just saying there. Yeah. 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 Well, some of them were, were smaller cameras yeah. that were doing some plate shots as yeah. well for, mm-hmm. you know, we put multiple cameras on a vehicle and that vehicle drove around Vancouver for about four hours. Do you prefer those slower days or do you prefer when you're busy all the time? I prefer to be busy, but I don't love the insanity that comes with the job at times. It's Mm. pretty stressful. Mm -hmm. Most of my nightmares are about filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually (laughs) surprisingly a reoccurrent theme in this podcast. You're not the the only person who has brought up film-related nightmares. 
Yeah. And they're yeah. always something very small that nobody else really can at all, you know, relate to. Yeah. Like parking the work, work trucks, trucks for stuff. the location manager and those sort of things. Yeah. 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 The bad dreams are very much related to the ones you have about not completing your university course or forgetting to, you know, those <laughs> yeah. ones you used to have about university or high school. Or showing up naked for your test or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. It's still, yeah, that applies to <laughs> camera work where you show up, you're not organized or it's raining, you didn't put a rain cover on the thing or you can't seem to get something in focus and it should be really easy and everybody's glaring at you. Yeah. Right. Wow, yeah, it's the funny. only job where people don't notice what you're doing if you do it correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. that is, it's, we actually had a question about that. It's kind of like the police, like you don't really appreciate it until that system's not working. You know, like I imagine a focus puller, like people don't, if you're doing your job successfully, no one's going to notice until it's out of focus. And then instantly it's like. And everybody can judge out of focus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. When you go yeah. to dailies or when we go to a screening of what you've shot the day before, or the week before, producers will come, actors will come sometimes, but you know, every no, nobody can truly give a objective answer about what good lighting is or what good acting is. But when something's out of focus, everybody in the room can agree, yeah, is that sharp? Which usually means that's not sharp. That's not sharp, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah I would say it's the most critical job on set. I've had people say to me, oh, do you think it's the most important? I wouldn't say that, but definitely the most critical. Yeah, there's no, because it's the only objective test. It's either good or bad. There's no like, well. (laughs) You have the only job that can ruin everyone else's work. Mm -hmm. How does that pressure feel? Like when you're when you're on a hundred and fifty million dollar feature, I I find it's a lot of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of pressure. It is. Um, Yeah, I try to, and I keep thinking it's going away, and then I'll do a movie. And then suddenly it's like, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> Even though I've been doing it this long, I should have all the tools to accomplish this. And it's, it can become really hard. How do you deal with that? Like in the moment on the day when you go home at night? I guess I have nightmares, but. <laughs> I do yoga. I try to exercise a lot. Um, try to ride my bike to and from work so I can do something that I have to focus on that doesn't allow me to st- to stray to the thoughts of work, mm-hmm. yeah, either mm-hmm. before or after work. Yeah. It really helps for me. Mm-hmm. And you do yoga. Do you do anything else? I've Any considered squirrel suiting. <laughs> <laughs> Something that is as intense as pulling it's, focus yeah. on a $100 million movie? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's pretty funny, yeah. Um, and with it being such a, a technical job, um, I always wonder, like, do you think that it's, is considered more of a creative or a technical job where you guys are like, I mean, literally pulling focus or building a camera is quite technical, but you know, it isn't a collaborative artistic industry. Both. Where, where do you feel? Oh, it's definitely both. Um, when you have, like usually I can pull focus. I mean, pulling focus, it sounds, I guess, to people who don't know the job, it should be pretty easy. You just go to whatever, who's ever talking. But Focus pulling is actually a lot of timing. It's not just keeping things in focus. It, it's it's changing focus between people or things so that it doesn't become uh, a distraction to the audience as they watch the scene unfold. Mm-hmm. It's so, also very organic, mm-hmm. I think. Um, certainly for me, I can't speak for Doug, yeah. I really study how the actors move, how they stand, how they emote, how they get in and out of chairs. Um, you're really almost starting to zen in with their movement, Hmm. you know, and you have to follow the emotion of a scene with where you place that focus because someone can be talking, 
but you might place the focus on someone else who's reacting. Mm-hmm. And that also tells the story in a creative way. That's, mm-hmm. for me, the more creative oh, part of the job. Absolutely. That's, yeah. And recently I worked with a director who wanted to be involved in every focus decision I made instead of me making those decisions, which I've been doing for all these years. And it was really hard to do things as I was told instead of how I thought they should be. Mm-hmm. How organically that mm-hmm. would you know, it was really escalate. hard. Yeah. It was really challenging. And I'm curious. So, like, are you making those decisions during blocking? Then, like, in situations where you are the author of the focus, um, are you just watching the blocking and you're like, "That's where my attention's going, so that's where the focus is going to go"? Or how does that process work? For me, it happens on take one, and then I change it on take two, and I get it better on take three. Right. Because the blocking, people walk through and it's for lighting, but the blocking means very little. And in fact, rehearsals and blockings are becoming less and less often. Yeah. 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 We often usually, shoot the yeah. first rehearsal. And what does the common cat sticker on say on everybody's oh, yeah. boxes say these days? If you shoot the rehearsal, <laughs> so it's, it's not, not a rehearsal. rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and do you feel in your position that loss of the rehearsal, is that damaging or is that better for you? in your job more stressful yeah i would say i mean sometimes it works out really well sometimes it doesn't work out and then when people get a little uh, like they light their hair on fire over it you have to say well that was the first time yeah. we've seen it that was my rehearsal and you just try and stay calm mm-hmm. if somebody decides to uh go postal i just like it i just like not oh sorry that's a double negative I prefer rehearsals, especially right. if it's a complex camera move or people have to come in and out or they're going to be eating a dinner or, or something that is going to waste time to reset. It's frustrating to everybody concerned, especially when they, you get negative feedback at the end. But like you say, it was because, mm-hmm. it's because it's the first time we've seen it. Often, rehearsals help to give respect to the process too. Right. Absolutely. And it's mm-hmm. respect to the actors and it's respect to all the technicians. And if I feel it's critical, I will say, I need a rehearsal. Right. And I will put that out on the floor. And where do you think this, the the demise of the rehearsal, where does that come from? Like, what, why, why is that a trend if there's benefit to having it? The switch to digital. Yeah, for sure, right? When we went from money going through a, a magazine that only lasted 12 minutes to 30-minute um, high-definition cameras now, we can run 30 minutes on a, on a clip. Yeah, mm-hmm. and people don't see the downstream cost of that, so they don't mind just shooting a rehearsal and co- consequently maybe never cutting for three or four takes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I think occasionally it's not the norm, but occasionally you can capture something in that rehearsal that you record that you might not have captured. But everybody has to be on board that it was the rehearsal, mm-hmm. right. and there are so many other factors going into that recording that they need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. You, you're not going to get perfection on the rehearsal if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. And even, you know, thinking about, as you were mentioning, respecting the process is, you know, a lot of those actors will save themselves for the take or they'll, you know, they'll they'll block and they'll rehearse and there'll be no energy there so they can save it for the take. And if your first take, you know, everybody's blowing it except for the actor who's doing 110, <laughs> like, yeah, respect the process. I think that's an interesting an interesting idea yeah. behind this. And how do you how do you go about sort of protecting yourself? Like when people do come down on you for like, oh, it's a blown take, and you're like, oh, it was my first time seeing it. Like, is there, 
just how do you go about doing that? I think you just say, let's go again. Yeah, because it sounds like there's almost this expectation on you and your role that you're able to predict the future, like you're able to anticipate what's going to happen and nail it the first time. Like that doesn't. Mm -hmm. Which kind of goes back to the, you know, you never really know. You never really think about the job until it's going wrong. Right. It's just like, oh, they put a camera up. Let's go. Let's roll. Let's roll. Let's roll. And you guys are like, hi. Okay, (laughs) here we go. Um, in that realm too, are you still doing measurements? Are you pulling off of a monitor? Um, both. both, yeah. I would say I'm a little old school compared to some other focus pullers who are out there. Some focus pullers won't even be in the same room as the um, action, which to me is mind blowing because I think you're not really as much a part of the process per Mm. se. I like to be able to see the actors. I need to be able to see the actors as they're moving, especially if they move quickly, because the reality is the image you see um, that you may be focus pulling from is about a three frame lag. So you are technically watching an image that has already happened. Oh, interesting. If you're not watching people, then yeah, you're, that's exactly right. (laughs) That's exactly how I think of it, Jessica, is that if you're watching the monitor, it's already happened. Right. Yeah. And you can't quite anticipate when somebody's starting to move a different direction or anything like that. Correct. Wow. Yeah. It's following the emotion, following the action. There's something really interesting there. Yeah. Recently, I was on a show that had three cameras running all the time. And it was a movie, a big movie, expensive movie. But we had three cameras all the time because we had children and the children yeah. were only available for 10 hours a day. So there was a lot of demands to get as much in that 10 hours as possible. And there was many times when they said, well, you can't be in the room because we were seeing the, and basically the three cameras were shooting in a circle. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And to not, and to being, <laughs> I had never been told on a film so many times that I could not be in the room with the actors. And it's like, this is, this doesn't make sense. I've always had been. It's like, well, you don't need to be, you have all these tools. Um, so yeah, I actually was forced to pull off the monitor sometimes and it was really hard because I don't do it that much. Like yeah. up until... It's always going to help you to see the actors. Mm-hmm. Always, in my opinion. Yeah. And to measure stuff. Like, I still measure rooms. Like, I measure where the table is, the lamp. Whether yeah. I can, I Absolutely. I measure the room, and then I can know where people are going through space. For reference, a lot of times you have a situation where um, the actors may not entirely go to a mark, or they ad lib they ad-lib something or um, a motion and you're the one who has to compensate for that nobody Mm -hmm. else really i mean the the operator will to a certain degree but you've got to be on your toes and you've got to be watching exactly where they're going because a lot of times we're dealing with half an inch of depth of field yeah which means if somebody moves forward half an inch and you haven't adjusted they are out of focus. Well, and I'm yeah, curious. It's intense. You you had mentioned like in, in the course of a show, do you kind of learn the idiosyncrasies of different cast, and you can kind of anticipate their movements a little bit more, how they might act in a scene, or is it every time you go to a new scene, it's like okay, starting from scratch? Oh no, I absolutely. I mean, I have been on this show now. This is our fifth fifth season, so I intimately know how yeah. my actors move when they're at work. And some actors know this the process well enough. Like I've worked with Kate Winslet and she, on a wide lens, like on a master, she'll act with her whole body and be wildly gesticulating. But then when it comes down to her close-up and you're really reading on her you know, face, she knows to act with her eyes because mm-hmm. she wants to have it in focus. <laughs> right. Yeah. And she also she doesn't want to do it knows again, you know? how to make it work. 
Good yeah. actors know the technical side of what's going on. They understand those parameters, mm-hmm. basically. They know so, where their frame is. They know how to hit those marks. They know how not to be too big, but look like they're still just as big as they would for a wide. Exactly. It's very interesting. Well, yeah, that's cool. Um, now, you guys never leave set, right? You kind of always exist around the camera as the camera's there. The, the camera department is sort of notorious for um, always being right. on set all the time yeah. compared to everybody else. Um, what uh, does this factor into, you know, how you hire or who you hire or why you hire as far as like people who can live with you in such an intense situation, living on set and never having that time to take a break from each other? For sure. Um, you you want to be with other people who are respectful of the process, who understand their role, that they're not supposed to be doing another job ever. Um, and I personally prefer people who are quiet hmm. on set, which leads back to the respect of the process. So I'm very cognizant of who is going to be coming out on the team. Now, sometimes when it's really busy, as it is right now, you're going to have to hire people from that pool of people you might not have worked with previously, so mm-hmm. you don't exactly know how they're going to react on set. Yeah. And then within that too, I guess, um, how do you, I guess, a personal style of management? There's you know people who will be very firm or there's people who are a little bit looser. Like where where would you fit in sort of the realm of of how you you know maybe not dictate your your crew but lead your crew yeah and perhaps what have you found to be the most effective within the camera department specifically mm-hmm. might be a tough question as a style well going back to your um the question about you know what influences who i would hire yeah to to, like, to be on the on the camera team with us i were i travel a lot with work and i've often done jobs you know whether it be across Canada or in the States or somewhere else. I always try to take people with me. And so I'd vet, actually my wife helps to vet crew members. Like, you know, there's people that we know that we know are going to be a good traveler. Like people who, like everybody says they want to travel for adventure, but the Mm -hmm. reality is it's grueling. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. The same gear that you, in Vancouver, load into a truck every day, you might be loading onto an airplane late at night or doing tedious carnet lists until three in the morning. It's a lot of work. And so you, I try to choose people who, yes, they say they want to do the adventure, but they also are up to the tedious uh, bits that make that adventure work. Right. And they're willing to put in the time and they won't complain, but they're also a good traveling compar- partner, like someone who won't piss you off on an aircraft, you know, by getting totally hammered and then like, being useless when they arrive at the other end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's that's... fine on the way home. You can get totally happy. <laughs> <laughs> then it's when there's work to do. Yeah, yeah. No. It, it's really hard when you are doing a travel show, um, and uh, I'm now in the place where I'm happy not to do travel shows um, because I've had a few eventful incidents. Uh, like, for example, we had a camera truck fire that was purposefully oh. set in India. Whoa. Oh, wow! So uh, it's a long story, but. You have to just continue to deal with it. it. This is an industry where you can't throw up your hands and say, oh, I guess we're done here now. <laughs> you have to keep trying and keep working and make it happen. And the week after that incident, my assistant and I worked for 110 hours yeah, oh my God. to bring things back up to a place where we could start 
the show again and function. Um, So, yeah, you need a reliable team. Yeah. And you need to get through that with an attitude that isn't crushing. Right. I imagine attitude has has a lot to do with how you hire as well. Massive. And we have to have fun because we spend like sometimes like I spend often three months away at a time. So the person has to be more than just good, but they also have to be, I want to have fun with them because that's yeah. also like mm-hmm. your kind of your buddy. That's yeah. your life. You've you've chosen this crazy lifestyle that is the film industry. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to find some pleasure in it somehow, even when it is crushing or it is you're you're working in conditions like you're in minus thirty eight degrees and yeah. you know, you feel like your feet are blocks of ice. How do you get through it? Well, mm-hmm. you get through it by having great people around you. And yeah. w- what kind of person actually works in camera? Which is a blanket statement, but... OCD helps. I prefer people <laughs> that have done a lot of things before they come to the film, uh, to the camera department. Like I, for myself, I was a real jack of all trades or, I don't know, I did a bunch of different jobs and I plus I got into the camera department quite late in life. I didn't become a trainee until I was 30, which is late. And mm. uh, so I like people who are, have a variety of talents, quite mechanical helps. People who can put something together and or take it apart or won't just throw up their hands and say, well, this doesn't work. I need to have people around me who are who love to make things work that aren't working mm-hmm. or can look at something and go, we can make that better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or someone who smiles even when they're trudging up a, a hill with a heavy sled or on a wet day. It's, it's kind of, a, I guess, a person that, I guess a farmer would be a good camera assistant. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we feel that way. (laughs) Got to start uh, recruiting from rural areas. Oh, they're amazing. Like the people in Alberta have great attitudes. Yeah. (laughs) It's that can-do attitude. You always have to just keep working towards the goal. Mm. You know, we just never stop. Failure is not really an option. Or you have to just keep working towards it until there is some kind of catastrophic failure. And then everybody regroups and says, okay, that didn't work. So how can we adjust the plan to make it work? Mm -hmm. I mean, generally, there's a lot of magic that happens on a set where you realize that 150 people or so are all coming together in that exact moment to capture an amazing performance. And that is quite magical Mm -hmm. at times. And usually those 150 people, there's like six of us working on the actual rolling of the take and everybody else has their chance to sit down or to rest. We don't. We don't. So we have to... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, and on a French hour day, it's like, you know, like when you literally cannot leave set. And if you're rolling on continuous shots, like, I mean, how do you go to the bathroom even, you know? Oh, yeah, I've been hospitalized after a shoot. Oh, yeah. my God, really? On an IV for five days, clearing out the infection. Yeah, unfortunately, wow. yes. Oh, that's brutal. Because there were no no bathrooms and you, you know. It sounds like a lawsuit is what that sounds like. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's but you don't think about those things as as filmmakers in general, anyways. Well, but now we, I think now we're proactive. Like, like all this walk away. Like, on some sets, I was on a couple of years ago. They, there was no food coming to, to me, and so at one point they asked Carrie Wilson, my camera assistant, like, "Where's Doug?" And she says, "Oh, he's probably gone to get something to eat." Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, no. he didn't ask? She says, well, no, if he's hungry, he's just going to go. <laughs> yeah. No, sure enough, no, yeah. Like, soon there was snacks for you me. You have to be proactive and you have to be somewhat verbal. I think you forget in, when you're in your, the beginning of your career that you don't want to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. And now it's, I won't approach it with anger or frustration. I just say, hey, I need to go to the bathroom now. Yeah. yeah. I'm going. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of that protection. You yeah. got to protect yourself. And, and we know the rhythm job. of set. Like, you know, if there's a big True. lighting turnaround, you're going to have an hour, some, maybe less, but yeah, you're going to have time. Mm-hmm. I just noticed recently that the lighting, now that lighting used to be a lot of big, burly people moving around huge 20K lamps on big stands, and they, you know, we'd have to crank them up in the air and put in huge diffusions. But now some of the ch- movies have it's all installed months in advance yeah the the rigging department and there's and it's sky all installed in the air and there's a beautiful huge computer system with the and the board operator never leaves his his or her station mm-hmm. and the lighting to turn to go from day to night like is like literally a pre-programmed uh app and yeah mm-hmm, i'm yeah. like okay we're lit like mm-hmm. oh that was my time I used to cherish. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that time has got oh, taken away. Your technology away. <laughs> just took away my bathroom break. <laughs> hey guys, Corey from Circus here. How many star packs do you fill out in a year? How many pages are they? Now multiply that by all the people who work in the film and television production industry, and you can quickly see how we get to tens of millions of pieces of paper. That's why Circus is digitizing the Start Pack. Circus is an encrypted onboarding platform that lets you invite cast and crew to submit payroll and residency docs, upload inventory lists for kits, and execute deal memos, all from the palm of your hand, paperless. Try it today at CircusHR.com. Anyone hungry for some popcorn-sized independent film? Well then, we hope to see you at the Vancouver Short Film Festival this January 24th, 25th, 26th. In its 10th year, VSFF celebrates film and animation storytellers who work short in time, but not short on cinema. I guess technically it is short cinema, though. And you should be there. Keep your eyes peeled to vsff.com for tickets and programs. And for our Vancouver Island friends, if you need film equipment, a sense of community, and a slew of other fantastic resources, you need to be part of Cinevic. Coordinating amazing events like the Short Circuit Film Festival, now open for submissions, and Cinespark, a short film program offering production assistance to get your script to screen. Get your membership today at cinevic.ca. Um, I have been on shows where we will have three techno cranes out on the show full time. And that is also huge. Um, when I first started out in the film industry, the expectations were so much lower mm-hmm. in general. And now I think the competition with all the different networks and how, how much the distribution is changing and it's still changing. I think people are still trying to figure out what that looks like. Facebook is creating uh, new content. Um, Apple's coming Apple, out with stuff. Apple, Everybody's doing everybody stuff. Everybody is. Yeah. Anybody who has a way to distribute entertainment is starting to do that. Mm-hmm. The technology change that I've, I mean, it's it's been, I kind of have lived through the horse and buggy to the to <laughs> nuclear age in some ways, or to <laughs> from the horse and buggy <laughs> days to uh, up until where we are now, which is, I guess, you know, the space race for all these different media that we have competing for time. But on a f- on film shows, up until a few years ago, before they had high definition taps on film cameras, the 
discussion between the operator and myself about what was in focus was key because we would be filming a scene, particularly, you know, especially if it was a tricky shot. And then the operator and I would discuss at the end of the take, like, well, what do you think? He goes, well, you missed him just on that little turnaround, but we have it on other takes and we know that we're going to have it on the reverse. So I think we're good. And then we'll go tell the director and director of photography. Yeah, that was good. There was a little buzz, but we know we have it. Mm-hmm. Now we have HD cameras that you see what you're recording in yeah. real time on 25 inch massive, beautiful monitors. And everybody looks at it from the hair and makeup people. They have monitors, the director, of course, and the director of photography, but even right down to, you know, the, the people sitting around in the grip stash, they have a monitor too. Wow. And so, now everybody expects it to be 100% in focus because somebody goes, oh, I don't think it was sharp there. Will they use that? I mean, certainly I understand it when it's a piece that you need. But So that has changed in that in the past, it was we were kind of um, being the, the gatekeepers of our own mm-hmm. craft. We're yeah. not that anymore. Like everybody can watch exactly what's happening. And that it's great for lighting and for hair. And it's also good because we know at the end of the day when we go home, we have everything we need to make those scenes, but it's uh, it's it's a whole different animal now that everybody's watching your work all the time. I think there's a lot of mystery that's gone away, yeah, with digital because everybody can have an opinion. They're watching it in real time, whereas with film, you wouldn't know what that looked like until the following day. And the director of photography would off often be doing. Um, adjustments on the set in order to create a certain effect or we would shoot color charts and he would very specifically say to the lab this is what I'm going for and I Mm -hmm. want you to color time to this yeah where now that is all done in real time with the dit who's on set which is the digital imaging technician Um, and so everybody seems to have an opinion (laughs) as well and there are times when the producers come down and the writers are with us all the time and there's a huge discussion that happens a lot of the time, which I find sort of, in a way, takes away from the original mystery of what the camera department was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you went from being magicians to, like, someone driving a bus with 180 backseat passengers kind of breathing <laughs> down your neck. Like, <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. On Pride and Prejudice, we did a four-and-a-half-minute cam shot in a, in a scene at a great manor house in England and uh, the whole thing goes around this huge party and there's all these actions that had to happen and it was sure it had it was about focusing it was also about timing and moving through the crowd and we rehearsed it for a day and a half and shot it in an afternoon because it was a one one take scene it was a mm-hmm. one yeah um, it had to all be perfect and mm-hmm. so you know at the end of the take 12 when everything went perfectly they're like well did we get it and I said I think so. But, you know, we really had to wait for three days until we got the exposed image back from the film lab because it was a film show. I just want to commend you on that. That sounds so (laughs) pressure filled and hard doing doing four minutes and rehearsing it for a day and a half. On film with all that background. And and it was cool because you get to move along with Kira as she goes through the crowd. Yeah. Nowadays, you, you sit at your monitor and try to get a glimpse once in a while, but you're you're watching your monitor. And are you excited to do those shots? Are those things you kind of live for? Yes. Yeah. So those are the pieces that really make that job fun. They do, yes. Yeah. That's so interesting too, because that's like the hardest, most, to me at least, most stress-inducing 
um, part of the job is is you know big stunts or big oneers or you know these big sequences and set pieces that you know you are responsible to keep in focus that whole time with million dollar actors and that sort of thing, and yet that's what you get off on. That's interesting to me. There's definitely an adrenaline rush. I mean, I don't think there are that many jobs on the planet where your heart starts pounding in the middle of your job. Mm-hmm. And That's true. Yeah, I still get that. You still, you know, you you get that sort of high off of doing something that's incredibly tricky. Mm-hmm. So you're all a bunch of adrenaline junkies then. <laughs> yeah, that's where the wingsuit came from earlier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. It's well yeah, it's it's to me I've always um described it to trainees and to other people who are interested or who or who ask. To me it's like a sport. It's something you train for, you don't take for granted. Um you stay fit for and you um yeah, you have a whole team relying on you. It's kinda like being a goalie in hockey. Okay. Again, nobody notices all the saves. It's like the goals that get past you that really stand out (laughs) and end up on the board. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting too. The the fact that it ends up on the board is actually a really funny part of that. Well, and in a way, like by pulling the focus, like your physicality is in the final product. Like your physical movements are seen on screen. Like Mm -hmm. you're almost like a character. You know? Yeah. Like you're almost like you are one of the handful of people that are working when the cameras rolling mm-hmm. it's like you sound performers yeah and that's basically it really and maybe lighting cues and those sort of things yeah um special yeah. effects for a gag special but, effects yeah, yeah. for mm-hmm. wind or mm-hmm. yeah dust yeah, those handfuls right, are getting two handfuls you know yeah. right in the inner circle that's for sure yeah while that shot is is going on yeah which is great i mean that's also um the fun thing about it is working with directors and cinematographers directly i mean that's yeah they, yeah, it's interesting. It's your work. It's almost the opposite for a lot of people because, like, you know, when you're about to roll, hold the work for 90% of the crew, except for the people actually involved with shooting the show. Mm-hmm. And it's their time to work. And yeah. it's their, yeah, it's their time to be an athlete, as you put it. You have to be able to concentrate 100% on what is happening in front of you. Yeah. While that if your mind drifts, rolling. if you bring things to work and your mind starts drifting, it's really, it's, it's terrible. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess you can let your mind drift when you're, you know, humping lamps around or even just building a camera. You're just kind of like building a camera. But once you're rolling, it's you're on the game or not. Actually, what has happened to me is that I got caught up in performances on this movie <laughs> called Bad Times at El Royale. Some of the performances were so fantastic that I would get caught up in it and I would be watching the actors and actually forget to rack wow. focus. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like, you can. You can. What happened? Um, that was you that asking was that question. Really what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really caught up in what was happening. Yeah, that's why I say you have to be 100% focused. It's You're concentrating so hard on what that action is in front of you. There's no mm-hmm. possible way, really, you can think about something else or you will lose the actor in focus. You can't not pay 100% attention. Mm. With this job, is it a job or is it a passion for you? Is it something you just get up to go to work and get a paycheck, or is it something that you can't live without? I think it's a lifestyle, first off. And if you don't have passion for it, you're going to be very unhappy. Mm. You have to have some kind of passion for the work. It's It requires passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it's it's a career. I mean, for me, 
when I was a second assistant, and a second assistant is the person who assists me. So a second assistant um, assists the first assistant, and I assist the, the cinematographer, just to put that um, food chain in there, if you will. The um, When I was a second assistant, I was inspired by first assistants I saw that came up to work on big movies that were career first assistants. And so they had an attitude of treating it as, as their profession, not a stepping stone to operating. Because in my world here, when I was a trainee and a second assistant, everybody talked about, oh, after you're a second for a while, then you become a first, then you become an operator, and then you become a DP. And that was kind of like, oh, I guess that's the, that's what you do. You go up these steps. But then when I worked with people like Pat McArdle from San Francisco, he was up here working on a movie called The Edge that Don McAlpine shot in the 90s. And we shot that in Canmore in the mountains. It was a very exciting movie. It was very skillfully set up and everybody was really professional and this pat mccardle guy like he says oh yeah this is my job this is my career I'm like oh so this can be a career if you if you treat it as such and you become professional in that way then mm -hmm. so for me i've never it, it's, it's not a stepping stone so i guess for me it is my career yeah so it becomes a passion that way it becomes a passion and i tried taking six months off last year and i just like huh, i was kind of I was looking forward to getting back to work because it's yeah. so social too. It's kind of it like, is. it's become my social life too. There's sadly. a lot of camaraderie, <laughs> sorry, camaraderie on the set. And yeah. you do sort of choose who you hang out with to a certain degree. So you are trying to enjoy the process as much as you can. Now, I've had people ask me, are you having fun on this job? And I was like, yeah, that doesn't quite describe it. You have to take a to bigger me. picture and look at it. <laughs> but, you know, am I enjoying the experience? Yes. Because each day might suck, but it's like, I guess, painting a house. I mean, it's sometimes not fun to paint the eaves, but, you know, the overall effect is great when it's done. Well, fulfillment and happiness are two different things, right? I think you have to come to the job happy. And then hopefully you receive the fulfillment you're seeking mm -hmm. once you finish the project. Yeah, and even even just sort of listening right now is like it's not it's not that you're content or like not happy. It's not giving you a bunch of happiness, but for some reason, you know, you keep showing up and keep wanting to do it because there is fulfillment in it. But what is that like? Is it the problem solving? Is it the pressure and success under pressure? Is that something that keeps bringing you back, or what is it? I think it's that each day is completely different. So if you didn't start out with a little bit of ADHD, you will get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really engaging. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like any other thing that requires 100% focus. If you're racing down a ski hill, as I downhill ski, you are focusing on every turn and you're in that moment. And filmmaking and focus pulling allows you to be in that moment at that moment. Hmm. You're mm -hmm. not, you just cannot think about other things. So that in itself is quite satisfying. Do you, do you find it somewhat meditative once you get through those moments or does that have nothing to do with it? As far as like that amount of pressure or that amount of focus, sorry. Well, sometimes I meditate and deep breathe after those moments <laughs> <laughs> to survive those moments. But um it's yeah i would just yeah i mean it it's meditative in the fact or i don't know if meditative is the right comparison for me but uh, i do do breathing on set to uh, calm myself down sometimes if i want to do some 
just kundalini yoga has a certain type of breathing you do into your stomach and people are always like, oh, is Doug okay? It's like, oh, he's, he's just doing some breathing exercises. Um, but I, I also, like I really got into assisting when I was younger because I started at 30, like I said before, um, because I, I wanted to travel. And for me, I've latched onto the travel part of the, of the film business and never let it go. So mm. I really enjoy the travel and I love seeing different things. Sometimes we work on the top of unfinished office buildings, like 40 stories in the air. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes we're inside mines filming, sometimes under the sea. On mountaintops? Or Frequently mountain on mountaintops. Yeah. yeah, glaciers. We get access a to a lot of places, work. a lot of helicopter work. Yeah. I've been to the Panama Canal, like yeah. Great Wall of China. But you get to go all these amazing places. And so, and even in the city of Vancouver, like going to places like, like I love infrastructure in cities. Like, yeah. I don't know, sometimes even going to the... The sewage treatment plant could be interesting. Yeah. So, for a day. It smells for a day. Right. For a day. Yeah. You don't have to do it forever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm like, what did I do in a previous life to be in this situation and suffering this yeah. way? I have a very sensitive nose, so I don't like the sewage treatment plant. <laughs> but yes, you get access to all these crazy places that other people in Vancouver or around the world will never see. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting part of the job for sure. Yeah, well, I, I used to say that there are... Uh, that if you work in film, you're not real people, you're filmmakers. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you'll get to go to all these fantastic places, but you also have to go through the service elevator to get there. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So you're never really right in the public with everybody else. You're not the real people. You're the film people. Yeah. yeah. We're a different level of carny, really. Yeah. Yeah. A very <laughs> unique kind. And then just talking about working around the world and... Uh, kind of the assisting infrastructure. How do you find Vancouver compared to a lot of these places? I think we're incredibly skilled in Vancouver. I think Vancouverites um, and people in Canada underestimate the skill level that we do have here. Um, I, I have, because of my experience in Vancouver, I expect that when I go elsewhere, it'll be that same level of professionalism, which hasn't always been the case, which was a real surprise for me hmm. personally. We have a unique thing here in that we have, I mean, we're in a guild or a union in our camera department, but within that guild and union, we have a trainee component. So we have trainees here. Other jurisdictions don't. And in the United States, they have a union, but they have no trainee program. So in Vancouver and in Canada, we have a trainee program, which guarantees that people that are wanting to come into our business learn with at least six different camera crews and so it gives a commonality to each one of our crews and everybody's been trained to work with all of us different people before they become a second assistant i think we have a stronger mentoring system and then maybe maybe going back to that trainee process a little bit um we were going to ask about uh hazing in the camera department. And that is something that used to exist, but has been kind of phased out over time. And I'm curious if either you wanted to speak to that. I can only speak from my own experience. I didn't do the trainee program. I was told I would never make it in really? the camera department mm -hmm. as a female. It was just never going to happen. So that wasn't the route that I did. Mm -hmm. I went more the commercial route and the independent productions. And then I had enough people vetting me to get into the union that I just came into the union. Um, I don't I don't look at it as a hindrance, but 
obviously it's been on other people's minds. So um, I was never the recipient of hazing. I've never believed in hazing of people to make them work harder or better. I don't think that's the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure there was hazing. I mean, it used to be, what was it? Maybe people were a bit more aggressive all over in the camera department when I started in the 90s. Mm -hmm. People were mean. Yeah. (laughs) There was a point where people were just mean. And meanness was tolerated and and kind of thought of as a a rite of passage. Right. You could pick on people below you. Um, That's changed a lot now. Like the movie I just completed, over half of our camera crew was female. Um, Many DPs request a large proportion of, or at least a mix of people. So it's not all, it doesn't become like a he-man woman haters club of people that can not have their thoughts or their opinions checked by the presence of people who might have a different opinion around them. Mm-hmm. It has a civilizing effect. It has become quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It's like everything, every department in film in general has just become you know, more and more inclusive, more and more thoughtful as far as how movies are made. That's an interesting perspective for sure. Um, maybe let's just take a quick step back and, um, maybe just describe the camera department as far as like the people that work there and what is the hierarchy? Do you want to go, Doug? Uh, sure. Uh, the camera department, um, is headed by the director of photography and the director of photography, uh, designs the look of the movie with the director in prep. Directly underneath him is the camera operator and the camera operator is the person who, um, moves the camera through space, designs shots that the director of photography describes, and uh, works with the actors to set up shots. And then the first assistant works with both of those people to uh, keep things in focus, organize the gear. And the second assistant assists the first assistant in organizing the gear and helping to put down camera marks and things like that. And the slate. And slating. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and record keeping. And truck sweeping and <laughs> yeah, and, and keeping, cappuccino making. Ca- <laughs> yeah, it's a trainee job. <laughs> um, yeah, they're and they're yeah very responsible for the paperwork and of things and also movement of gear. They're the facilitators who are actually making sure that stuff arrives on the set or in the camera truck when you need it to be there, and also that it leaves so it's not costing production extra money if you forget about a very expensive piece of gear on the truck. Right. And then they oversee the trainee. And the, the poor trainee really has to answer to every single person on the set. So their head is spinning generally because they're in this new environment. They don't know who to answer to first. Um, and everybody's coming at them with specific requests. <laughs> so <laughs> they're a bit spinny. Uh-huh. And second assistants like, can be... Well, I guess an example of a real fastidious second assistant... Um, plan was when we went to do this movie called Mountain Between Us up in the Purcell Mountains. We were going to go there for a month and we knew we were going to be in extremely cold weather and it was minus 30 pretty much every day for the 30 days we were there. <laughs> so before we had a plan for all these batteries we were going to take into the Alpine. The batteries have to be warm or they don't work. Yep. And there's no generators on mountains so they have to be charged, warm and be ready to work all day. So we calculated how many batteries we might need for everything because the camera takes them, the monitors take them, the director's monitor, the steady cam. So we have maybe 50 to 60 batteries going up a mountain every day. So we're like, wow. how can we warm oh, no. them? So we figured out a little warming system, made a Velcro little 
patches that would go on the back of every thing. And then we figured out how many hand warmers it would take for those batteries and then change them at lunch for 30 days. So Adrian um, Weiss, our, one of our camera assistants, she did, like, did all the math and figured out, okay, this is how many hand warmers we need to keep our batteries good. Mm-hmm. And so she actually had a list and every day how many had to be taken out of their packages and shaken up on the way up the mountain <laughs> in the yeah. van every morning. Yeah. And oh when my. we got to location, there was this skid of hand warmers showed up and like, oh, that's how many hand warmers we need. And has that changed sort of uh, the depth of field going from film to digital? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in film, there was a bit more of a curve. And I was on a show that was one of the very first digital cameras produced by Aeroflex, the D20. Mm. And I was testing all the equipment at the rental house. And there was no manual yet out for the camera. So I'm trying to figure this out with the other technicians who are at the rental house. And I put on a very wide lens, like a 14 millimeter lens, and had the focus set quite shallow at two feet. And the iris was closed down. And somebody walked across the back of the rental house and I'm looking at the image, and you couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman. Hmm. Hmm. And normally, everything on a 14 mil lens is in focus. Especially and, closed down like that. And I thought, oh boy, oh oh my God, I am in trouble here. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, so it suddenly became a lot more critical when they originally put out those cameras. They were saying that the native ASA, which is the exposure index, was 800. Well, it really wasn't. It was more uh, around 320 ASA. I know this is a bit technical, but it just that's another roadblock for a focus puller. Suddenly, your job has gotten that much more critical, that much harder. I know of some very experienced focus pullers who decided at that time they were no longer going to continue their career in focus pulling mm. because they just thought this is too difficult. And wow. on that show, the B camera focus puller got fired. Wow. And how do you protect yourself in that circumstance? Are you trusting in sort of visual uh, measurement, like in your own head, like from years and years of measuring and knowing how far something is from, you know, where the lens is compared to where the actor is? Or are you on the monitor trying to chase those three frames? Well, I use every tool within my toolbox, including the force. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have to. I have to. Yeah, yeah, good answer. I've, yeah. So anything and everything, just pulling that toolbox out, pulling your hair out and trying to make sure yeah. everything gets nailed. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems kind of like a confluence of uh, intuition and then technological knowledge, but actualizing that all in your mind in the moment on the fly constantly changing that's that's how do you even learn how to do that as a you well know? that's where the force plays into <laughs> yeah. it yeah I was gonna say, that's where experience comes in yeah. yeah yeah just doing it i guess yeah when you do it over and over and over and over again you hope that some of that somewhere deep within your gray matter sticks hmm. and you can call that out when it's necessary because there are times where you have no preparation. You have not been giving, given any technical advantage, and still you have to make it work. Mm-hmm. So upgrade days for seconds can be a little dicey at times. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it depends how you enable people. I mean, if, if you can support people, if, you, if someone hasn't done it before and they want your advice and you can 
give them an easier shot. It's it's about making people successful rather than tr- criticizing them for failure. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to be supportive. And on shows where I haven't felt support from the people above me, <laughs> then it becomes exceptionally hard to do my job. Yeah, And that happens. It does. It does happen. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the, the old... Um, thoughts about the camera department, which do sound like they're changing again across the board in filmmaking though, is, you know, how do you manage? Like, how do you actually manage your department and how do you work with people? How do you empower them to do their job correctly for you instead of just ridiculing them? I've been ridiculed as a, uh, just a grip starting out, made fun of in front of entire crews. I learned right away though. I never, you know, I never made that mistake again, mm-hmm. but I always remember that circumstance and I will never do that to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it is nice to see that everything is changing. Well, and that's been a reoccurring theme in this podcast is across departments is there's been kind of uh, a transition towards greater emotional intelligence and management styles. I mean, not at the expense of functioning as, as a film company, but uh, I guess just not going out of out of our way to be cruel and mean at times. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I think the best leaders that I, I have seen on set are the people who, you know, the directors of photography that do understand at times what we're up against and they want to facilitate us doing the best job that we possibly can under very trying circumstances. Those people understand the bigger picture and those people make the better leaders. Mm-hmm. And they're not throwing you under the bus. No. When, you know. But now I'm at the point in my career where I will say, wow, that bus really hurt. I, does anybody else <laughs> see the tracks on my back? That was super painful. Wow. <laughs> so, and then everybody laughs and, you know, you go again. And if you can make light of a really difficult situation, I think it makes everybody feel a bit more at ease. Mm-hmm. Most problems that I encounter in the film business are because of communication. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if production's mad at you, then, well, why would that be? Well, it's because somehow along the line, they thought something that you didn't do and you didn't know they wanted that thing. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of that, especially on feature films. I find that because they're encountering problems they've never dealt with before. Yeah. Mm. And films aren't logical. Like sometimes we'll go back and forth to locations three or four times because of maybe from a uh, could be a cask scheduling issue. Mm-hmm. Could yeah. be locations needs to rebuild the barn and make it how it was before it burned down. Yeah. But you do things like that take hours and hours of time. Like moving a film unit in a rural area can take four hours. Yeah. Yeah. And so the pressure is, okay, we have to have camera wrap by midnight. Well, guess what? We're shooting till four. Yeah. And then production's like freaking out. How come it took you so long to put stuff? Well, guess what? It rained last night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It yeah. rained. Well, what does that have to do with it? Well, well all your gear needs to be clean. $2 million worth of equipment that is covered in mud, water, and it has to be 100% dry if I put it back in that truck that has to travel. It's, it's, it's surprising what you have to explain every day in your job as a first AC mm. that would seem logical if, if people were watching us. Like sometimes we're folding up wet, easy up pop-up tents at three in the morning, like, and you're just soaking wet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah. oh, how come it took you so long to wrap? Were you having beers in the truck? No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the bullying sometimes come, comes from a place of fear. Um, if somebody at the top, let's say the production manager is being crapped on by somebody else, then they want to share the crap and, mm, yeah. 
and it trickles, it does trickle down. Um, so the communication is absolutely key because there are a lot of people who are in those positions who don't spend time on set and have to be um, handheld a little bit in terms of what is the process, like what happens at the end of the night when all your equipment is covered with mud or water? Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean to all the subsequent steps that have to be taken in order to make that equipment work the next day? Yeah, especially how technical the equipment is. Because yeah. something like, you know, at least when I was in electrics, like you're dealing with cables. So mm -hmm. you, there's one part of it that needs to be clean. The rest doesn't matter. You know, or, or lights, they're covered in something. But as long as it turns on, it's totally fine. But with you, there's like a tiny little piece here and a tiny little piece here that works to just make sure the camera holds together even or filters or lenses or, you know, internal workings that you get a little bit of dirt in there or you get a hair or something like in a gate specifically, you know, the whole thing goes down. Mm -hmm. It's I, that. And it's also not letting things like if everything looks muddy and messy when you pull it off the truck the next day, that's what your department looks like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's. I'm quite big on optics. Yeah. Like as far as keeping the carts tidy, keeping the truck tidy, keeping people's personal demeanor tidy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I keep wet wipes on my cart. <laughs> Seriously. And I've had, I've gotten blowback on that. And I've said, well, do you want me to leave to wash my hands every time I have to handle a lens, mm -hmm. which has to be clean and pristine? Yeah. No, this is the more efficient way of doing it. I, I'll use a wet wipe after I've touched something that's muddy or dirty so that I don't get the equipment filthy. Mm -hmm. And you, as long as you explain that in a way that makes sense, then you at least have the aha uh -huh moment. And if they don't have the aha uh -huh moment, you think maybe I won't work with these people yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is it is sort of a unique quality of the camera department too to be tidy, to have that show of tidiness, to um, to always be so organized. Why do you think that is compared to other departments? Loss and damage. Yeah, you're trying to mitigate loss and damage. Uh, to a large degree, the optics are very important. Well, that's we, the we history are... of it. Like, you know, I don't know. It's, I guess, camera people in the past used to wear ties to work. And, yeah, suits. You know. And so that kind of tidiness. So what you're really saying is that at this point, you both are really quite slumming it by not wearing a suit and tie to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't own a suit and tie. So. Yeah. <laughs> Once they stop serving the martini. Yeah. <laughs> I think Arterix, uh Fuzzy coats are the new uh, the new suit and tie. Yes, yeah. that's right. We do uh, often wear all black. So, <laughs> I mean, our, it is slimming, right? Event. That yeah. is, yeah. yeah, that's the advantage. Yeah, yeah. Gore-Tex is the new. <laughs> yeah, Gore-Tex is the new three-piece suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. It's interesting, right? Like, I mean, the camera department, like. I think you said it earlier, Doug, like the efforts or maybe it was you. I apologize. But uh, like the efforts of the entire crew are, you know, come together in that moment. Right. They is filtered through the literal lens of the camera department. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like the entire investment, multi-million dollar investment in this product, you know, is in their jurisdiction. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, when they see a roll camera, <laughs> you get nervous when you know this might 
we can only do this once. <laughs> yeah, like nothing, none of it else matters unless that succeeds, right? Yeah. Like it's, you know, that's why everybody Everything there. leads to that moment. Every, Every department yeah. comes to that moment. Well, I had a trainee once who um, I pulled him aside and, and said, your letters on the slate, because he was writing the identification letters on the slate for the scene number and the take number, I said, it's really messy. And everybody's going to see that slate. And he's like, well, what does it matter? As long as they can read it. And I said, well, the next guy might have incredibly neat letters. Who do you assume is going to do the better job with all of that camera equipment? The messy guy or mm. the neat guy? I mm. said, those are the optics of the camera yeah. department. And he was like, oh. <laughs> 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 oh, I get it now. We, yeah. I give out stickers of success to people at work randomly. I've act I've actually heard of these stickers. I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't ask uh Doug about his stickers because it's really quite cute. <laughs> well the stick well it's it's a a form of reinforcement. I I worked years ago on a a second unit with these Mexican director of photography and director and they gave out stars, like little sticker stars just out of the sticker store. Oh, that was a great shot. And they, you'd get a star. And I thought, wow, that's really simple. But people love their little stars. And so a couple of years ago, I started giving out kitten stickers to the, somebody <laughs> who had done an exceptionally good job. Yeah. And then people were like, oh, I want to earn a kitten sticker. And I said, well, it doesn't say as much about the person who did the good job as the rest of you who didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, these kitten stickers. Wow. Have, I see where this comes. Yeah, yeah they have become coveted in the I like I have friends who are in the camera department and I've heard of the kitten stickers and what it means to get one and it's actually yeah, kind it's of, a simple thing you can do to make someone or to I don't know it just it, it's a simple thing you can do to encourage positivity yeah and Scooter. put pressure on the rest of everybody and yeah. make everybody else feel like crap <laughs> <laughs> I think positive affirmation is super important it's such a simple way to do it it's so rare in the film business yeah, yeah it, it is really, really is. rare yeah. generally people like to point out the mistakes or why didn't this happen this way and if you can do something to push the positivity hmm. that's a good thing um, one thing for people kind of getting into the industry uh, who want to work in the camera department do you have any sort of tips and tricks to them as they as they come in for the very first time? I think each person's route to coming into camera is unique and different. And um, definitely you can do a lot of reading. There's so much online now that you can access. Um, so you don't really have an excuse to not know what the responsibilities are of mm. working in camera. And certainly if you're interested in camera, it makes sense to take some photography courses of some kind. So you get the basic knowledge of what you're going to be, what kind of environment you're going to be put into and the knowledge base that you're expected to have. I think asking for mentorship is super important. Um, I certainly had mentors where when I was coming through the department and still have mentors, I still talk to people and still ask them, um, you know, how did you do this or how did you achieve that? Even within my peer group, uh, I will ask those questions just because you never stop learning. The technology changes so quickly. What you knew two or three years ago with equipment might not be as relevant anymore because the technology shifts. Every prep I have to relearn a camera because the cameras change every six months. Now. Exactly. So every That's what I have nightmares about. I have to relearn. <laughs> and yeah, what? For pe for people coming into the business, yeah. I would recommend, for sure, they seek out a mentor. And it's 
my first day on set as a trainee, I had never I had never wanted to be in the film business. I had no ambitions to be in the film business. And I showed up as a trainee and I hadn't I didn't even know what anything was. In fact, somebody asked me to get an Apple box, which is an Apple box on set is a box you sit or stand on. And I literally was looking around. We were filming in Chinatown. I was literally looking around for for apples. That's not a joke. I had no idea. I would have liked to... I I think if if you're trying to get in the film business, you should probably go to one of the courses that you can take to learn something about onset awareness. In fact, we we require it. Now, Now it's required to get Mm -hmm. into the trainee program that you have to do a certain amount of coursework so you don't show up on set not knowing what a a slate is. Or, you know, and and that's uh, that's come out of a place of, I feel, compassion, <laughs> because as you said, it was pretty harsh when the yeah, training program first started. And, you know, there there were a lot of people who were shaming uh, trainees, which is not to say, you know, sometimes that can be an effective tool for learning in a way. For a while on our set, we had a shame bell. So if anybody <laughs> made a terrible mistake, we would ring the shame bell and shame them publicly. But it was in good fun. Right? Yeah, that's a positive way to shame somebody. Yeah. It's kind of a funny bit. Yeah. In uh, fact, we've had requests to bring the shame bell back <laughs> <laughs> just because it was levity on set. What are your thoughts on like volunteering or interning? into the film industry? Is that something that you agree with or disagree with or have an opinion at all on? Absolutely. I think, you know, anytime you can get exposure, um, go for it. You know, that I think so much of attitude is going to determine your success. I don't think anybody can survive in the film industry without some perseverance and really, you know, you literally learn from your mistakes daily. Yeah, I think people should know what they're getting into as far as the hours and yeah. the unpredictable. Like being a freelancer is a whole different world. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a culture of saying yes as well. Like <clears throat> if anybody's offering you a job and you're tired um, and you've been working, you know, series or even just day calling, you're just like, yes, I can work that weekend and do that commercial. And yes, I can, you know, I'll work those three weeks in some other country. I'm going to overlap on another show that I've already said yes to, but I can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Yeah, that's that's a good point. There is there is a culture of, yes, that is hard to, <laughs> it's hard to uh, turn that off. Yeah. Because you're, we're in a pleasing business and you're also, as Don McAlpine said years ago, it's not about getting good work that's so important as, Taking it away from somebody else. No! <laughs> That's, That's so really true. good. That's really good. Um, yes, yeah, so, and you feel flattered. I mean, it's a weird way that the the self employed world works in that you feel chuffed as soon as somebody offers you that job. And you're like, oh, I want to do it because they want me. Mm-hmm. It's a type of affirmation when you get that phone call mm. asking you to do the work. So yeah, the hardest part sometimes in the industry is figuring out how to say no and say no in a really graceful way that they will still call you in the future. Yeah. That balance is definitely difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you're not in that phone call, once you're not getting those phone calls all the time, they slowly get harder and harder to find. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I mean, there's a joke that, you know, there's it takes 10 years to get in and then it takes 10 years to get out yeah. of the industry. Yeah. You know, it's, You've sold, you've kind of sold your soul when you agree to a job, mm-hmm. or and, just agree to work in film. It is a lifestyle. Agree, it really yeah, is. Yeah, it's a yeah. lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's your choice. entire life when you're mm-hmm. in it. When you're really in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think it's important for people to say yes when they're first starting, just 
keep going and risk burnout or <laughs> just so they can get used to the hours and get used to the intensity? Well, I think burnout can be, I mean, you have to take care of yourself. Even when you're working 14 hours a day, I think you can reduce the burnout by, you can, people say, I haven't got time to eat right or exercise. Well, if you don't, you better fit yeah. it in somewhere because you're going to die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely people that I look at on set and they're leading such an unhealthy lifestyle. I actually have concern for their well-being. Mm. So you do have to do what Doug does, which is step away and get some food or you step away and go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And if people are going to freak out about that, you note it and you say, okay, maybe I think long and hard about where I take the break or you say these people aren't actually being reasonable and there are various avenues you go through to mm -hmm. make sure people understand that. But no, it is reasonable that people have to use the bathroom once in a while. Yeah, seriously. But as far as taking, like staying healthy and or taking a job choice, I think you have to do both. I mean, I... One doesn't come with people. I was like, well, how do you expensive another? Like, I, I try to exercise a few times a week, even while I'm in a full time show. And people say, oh, why would you do that? I said, well, it's easier for me to to um, get rest at the end of a show than it is to get reef, you know, to get back into shape. Mm -hmm. It's so important to you what we do because it's so physical. Like the camera assisting has never stopped being physical. No, the, the stuff's heavy. Yeah, there's a lot of it. In fact, there's more gear than ever. So it's very physical. It is. And and when I first started in the industry, a mentor gave me advice and said, the two things that are most important in the film industry, hydration and stretching. And I thought he was crazy at the time. I'm like, how can those be the two most important things? <laughs> but now I agree with him. I think yeah. that is true. You have to be responsible for your own hydration um, because we can get so dehydrated so quickly. You get caught up in the moment a lot. Yeah, an and hours pass and you're right there and you're constantly talking or, you know, communicating or mm -hmm. just breathing takes up so much, you know so much liquid in your in your body mm -hmm. and if you don't stretch you're more liable to injure yourself mm -hmm. because the equipment is heavy and it's awkward yeah and it's hurry up and wait mm -hmm. yeah so you wait 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 and then when you hurry again if you're not limber it can yeah. be a dangerous situation mm -hmm. and what about Ted um, as far as discussing burnout and discussing you know the sort of mental health issues that we face as filmmakers like what what do you do to try and combat that or you know, work with your crew to help them combat that. Is that something that you think about? It's a bit of a newer conversation, I think, that people have been going through on film sets too, is, you know, me mental health has become a, a bigger topic of discussion. I think it's about expectations. I think like, there is no 40-hour weeks anymore. And I think it's, I don't know if it's mind over matter, but there's a certain amount of, the fact is we work 60 hours a week as a minimum week. Yeah, that's a light week. That's a light week, 60 that hours a, a week. week. Yeah. So when you get your head around that, if that's your new no mind, if that's your kind of reset mark. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how to, dis I don't know how to discuss that. I, I guess because I've been kind of, like it's got, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I have, stuck. definitely I've had colleagues who at a certain point in time during the course of my career have had mental health issues hmm. um, and they've overworked themselves to the point where they've had a breakdown of some kind 
And some people step away from the industry and do a major timeout, or they uh, figure that maybe this isn't the industry for them, or they decide to reinvent themselves in a different capacity in the industry, but mm -hmm. maybe not in camera department. Um, it's a it's a real challenge for a lot of people. Um, I do yoga, and that is a huge stress release for me, and skiing, and try to stay physically active to reduce those stressors and eat well mm -hmm. um, and pay respect to my body and getting as much sleep as I possibly can under the circumstances. Yeah, exactly. That's a big thing. Um, but it does happen, yeah. for sure. And I think the film industry attracts people who um, – you know, aren't part of the the norm of real people, as you said. Yeah. Um, so it does attract very artistic uh, personalities that may be on the edge of normalcy. I do think <laughs> <laughs> there's a... It's a nice way to put that. Yeah. yeah that was very diplomatic. <laughs> Thank you. Perhaps one of the more diplomatic expressions <laughs> of that sentiment I've heard. Yes. Um, there, there are, you know, there are people who abuse themselves through drugs and alcohol. That is a reality. So people need to be aware of that, especially if they're coming into it. Mm -hmm. Because if that stress of whatever job you're doing becomes too much and you turn to drugs or alcohol, it's not going to help you long term. Mm -hmm. Maybe it helps you in the short term. And people need to be aware. Yeah. Of how that. can you position yourself to run the marathon that is that your career? Do you think you're avoiding real life by working in movies? Is it like oh, is that sure. why you yeah. do movies though? I think to it's avoid a... real life? It's fantasy. We're all Peter Pan. Yeah. We, we don't have to grow up. I like <laughs> I like the traveling roadshow for sure. I mean I yes, I, to, to to some degree mm. I enjoy getting a new employer every three months and also like having a chance to move around and see different parts mm. of the world and also to I guess to test myself, I'm like, can I really do this? <laughs> yeah, just an in interesting concept is uh, the concept of being a blue collar worker as a filmmaker, where the outside world would perceive you of being like glamour, the glamour of the industry, oh, and working with yes, famous people yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which is not true. No. Mm. Well, that's part of the make believe. It's fun going to <laughs> premieres. That's the glamour, but the three months preceding the yeah. premiere are not, not that so much. No, fun. what's what's in the frame might be very glamorous, but what's behind? You know, the hundred and fifty <laughs> sweaty, tired people behind the camera, much less so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I even think that the glamour <laughs> for the actors is also a construct of the yeah. industry. Totally, I think it's a sales tool. The sales tool to, to sell the movie that's coming out or whatever it might be. Sell your career as well if you are a big actor. Yeah, they work so hard. They really the, do. The talent really, mm -hmm. they have to. And they have to put a smile on their face and they can't complain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They what? have more of a reputation of having to be a, a yes person than we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're only as good as your last job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you see positive attitudes in successful people. Like when you see Harrison Ford come on set and not leave and hang out there and, you know, not complain, not go to his trailer. It's like, it's inspiring. And it's not just him. It's like anybody who's super, like it's inspirational. And I, and I take those people as examples of how I would want to conduct myself. Hmm. So when I see successful people and their behaviors, that's the behaviors I emulate. As mm -hmm. do I. Yeah, that's interesting. What, what is that relationship like between an actor and yourselves, like on a daily basis? I mean, I think 
you are always trying to be in a position of respect to their craft because we're there to facilitate what they are doing in front of the camera. At the end of the day, we're there to make them look good. Um, but they're also people. They're, you know, we don't have to put them on a pedestal. We're working directly with them. If we have a question for them, I certainly will ask that question. And uh, I have, I've heard stories of people, you know, crew people being shut down by actors. I personally have never experienced that, fortunately. Mm-hmm. Knock on wood. Yeah, I. It, it's uh, it, it's interesting because they. So, like some actors, when you work with them, they really know your craft or they really know what focus pulling is. Some don't. And on some movies, I've had to try to, I don't know, educate or try to mold them into what is going to be better for everybody. Mm-hmm. And how do you say those things? Like when you're telling somebody like you blew past your mark again and it gets hard for my job if you're always blowing past your mark. Or does that, do those conversations even happen? Are you going to somebody else for those conversations? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a tough one. Um, situation, it's per situation sort of thing. Like an example. Oh, there was one um, actress that was particularly on her phone, disregarded marks, disregarded even the process of showing us where she was going to be on a particular take and just suddenly she would change everything each time. And one night she was on the camera truck and I was somebody was showing off the kitten sticker they had got that day. <laughs> and this actress I had coincidentally worked with on four different movies. And she said, kitten stickers? How come I've never gotten a kitten sticker? I said, well, blank. <laughs> I won't say her name. That's her good behavior. You haven't hit your mark. You've been in your cell phone. You've been... said. And she was just like devastated, like, oh, no one's ever told me I should do those things. Wow. Wow. I guess when you're a number one or a number two, like nobody's really going to talk to you about those small things. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose, you know, if you never had the benefit of film acting education, like that's not a concept that a theater actor necessarily, you know what I mean? You still got to hit a light, I guess. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah. And they're not there to make our jobs easy. I mean- Certainly that not. Was kind no, of a, they're for their own job. A sideshow. Everybody's on their story, own job. But you, um, you can help to mold things. You can also, mm-hmm. what I do personally is I, I have a fabric tape measure still, even though we have other tools to measure distance and actors. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, if it's going to be a particularly hard take, I'll kind of train them like my cat. Yeah. I'll take the tape measure out and then they go, oh, oh, is this a t- yeah, oh, yeah, we're on a long lens now. This, this is, is critical. Yeah, you know, this is going to be critical focus. So I don't want to, oh, so do you think I'll be here? I'm like, no, no, you go. You, I'm just going to measure. So. I try to uh, telegraph yeah. uh, that it might be challenging for everybody and that things could be made better. That's mm. an excellent way to do it. But yeah. it's a way that I, I can signal like, oh, Doug's got a state measure up. Yeah. Yeah. A physical yeah, yeah. representation yeah. of what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, It's part of the magic. I also do that on take one, day one of every movie. So take my tape measure, even if it's a wide lens photograph right. in the entire room. Just so the first AD and everybody gets to know the process that, oh, I'm here too. Because yeah. these days we can get forgotten Mm -hmm. about as do you need time like first Mm -hmm. ad's that are old school or people that have been around for a while they know that they'll ask like jessica do you need any time Mm -hmm. or any marks or do you want to see anything or so i take my tape measure out to remind people that i'm here and it's not to slow the process down but more to speed it up just so that Mm -hmm. they're cognizant that um, respect the process i'm there and yeah yeah it's a good learning opportunity for this well and i suppose it's a way to introduce yourself to the crew you know, like I am yeah. the first AC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can tell because I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it really helps to uh, to introduce yourself and to yeah, and to producers and to everybody on set. Like if you sit behind your monitor and don't uh, expose yourself to to them as a person, then you are left behind. Well, and I think that's something that's kind of unfortunate, and something the reason we do this podcast in part is that what can oftentimes happen in the film industry especially with it being so busy and people coming in and rising so fast is they people get uh you know so laser focused on their own department and their own job and their own functional area that they lose sight of they're a part of a greater machine and they don't you know you can run into situations where people lack empathy for you know this is why this person's or, job yeah. is important and why you have to consider them in your work you know mm-hmm. so. oh yeah um it's a dance between uh, myself and the person on the on the sound boom and yeah, the people absolutely. with the special yeah. effects air machines we're all fighting for the same space that's not being seen by camera yeah. and you have to approach that with a certain amount of give and take mm-hmm. well and everybody on a film set from PA to director is important because if they weren't they wouldn't be there they, they wouldn't be paying <laughs> for it so mm-hmm. they wouldn't be paying for it I think that's the bigger that's one the yeah. Big, yeah, yeah that's the bottom line Great. Well, I, I think we're about out of time here. Um, so we did want to say thank you so much for, for coming in and chatting with us. And this has been educational, I'd My say. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah, you both were Yeah, fantastic. thank you so much. This thank has you. been, uh, yeah, it's been great to talk about things I didn't know were worth talking about. <laughs> Kitty stickers no, all around. So that's it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcasting Crew. Big thanks to Eugenio Battaglia of Pleasant Sound Media, Hugh G. Funk, for recording and mixing this episode. Our podcast theme music is provided by Jeremy Wallace McLean, and the series is produced and co-hosted by our very own human kitten sticker, Corey Orban. Thank you, Corky McScootscoots. Please be sure to subscribe to Podcasting Crew wherever podcasts are found. Follow us on all the social medias. And give our series sponsor, Gander, at CircusHR.com and throw a like, share, or web hit to our community sponsors, Vancouver Short Film Festival and Cinebank. Thank you, and meow meow.